Welcome to the Diversity, Inclusion, and Belonging Teams podcast, Why Language Matters. This podcast is meant to explore words, their meaning, and how we can use language to be inclusive. My name is Marcus Accord. My pronouns are he, him, and his. My name is Badiana Badia, and my pronouns are she, her, and hers. My name is Hillary Brown. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. My name is Nicole Doyle. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. Thank you for joining us for this conversation today. I'm really excited to have our panelists talking about the dangers of colorblind thinking. When you hear people say things like, oh, I don't see color, I think there's this belief that post the civil rights movement. Hi, everyone. We're going to do something we haven't done before and interrupt our guests to give you a little more context and definition to some of the words and phrases that we're using. So here's Badiana to help us understand the civil rights movement. The civil rights movement was a struggle for social justice that took place mainly during the 1950s and 60s for Black Americans to gain equal rights under the law in the United States of America. And back to the story. When you hear people say things like, oh, I don't see color, I think there's this belief that post the civil rights movement, that all of that was in the past, that we were in this post-racial society. And so I'm really looking forward to this conversation to talk about. First, I thought we'd start with a little history lesson, reminding people this wasn't that long ago. You know, the Civil Rights Act was 1964. So people like Ruby Bridges, who integrated schools in Louisiana, which is the state where I'm from, she's only 66 years old. So when you start to put that in context of our working environments as well, it's like we've got people still working in the workforce today who were uh, alive and part of the, the segregated society. Many were either part of it or they were just silent about those things. So it just helps us to remember that this wasn't that long ago. Yes, the the 15th Amendment was 150 years ago. The 15th Amendment was supposed to give all citizens the right to vote. It reads, The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Going through history through that time, there were still Jim Crow laws that didn't end until you say the 70s or 80s, there's this, this long history, though, of, of violence and not allowing people to, to participate fully in society. And so I'd love to just have that conversation today and hear your experiences. And what do you think about when someone says, I don't see color? Typically, when I hear somebody say that they don't see color or I just want to hire the best person for the job. Or my parents taught me better than that. It typically comes from a white person, somebody who may not have the complicated and painful history of segregation, systemic racism, racist laws and policies. It always seems like it's coming from a place of good intentions. It's almost a knee-jerk reaction to say, whoa, 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 I get that I'm white, but I swear I'm not racist (laughs) and I have really good intentions. So please, please stop talking about race with me. And that's kind of the vibe that I've always gotten. That's always been my experience when I've heard any permutation of I'm colorblind or I don't see color. 
I'm half white, I'm half Hispanic, I'm first generation immigrant, and I was <laughs> raised on welfare. And so coming from a low socioeconomic place, I have that perspective. I have the perspective of, you know, some people do when they see me, they see a person of color, they see possibly somebody who's undocumented. And then, of course, there's other people who see me and they just think, oh, well, you're just another white girl. <laughs> and I do have various perspectives on it. And so I can understand where that may be coming from a place of good intentions. It's ignorant, but it, it's well-intentioned. And I can also see the pain that it causes me and how it invalidates many of the ways that I walk through life. And again, like I said, I'm, I'm half white and half Hispanic. And so probably a lot of people see me and, and they don't think of me as a person of color. And so there is that other perspective that I have that, you know, I, I acknowledge my privilege. I acknowledge that I don't always walk through life with that veil. I think the concept of colorblindness, like Nick said, is well-intentioned. It has the effect, especially of a woman of color, it basically denies the lived experiences of people that look like me. So my life experiences, my parents' life experiences, my parents are from Haiti, grew up in a Haitian household. I was a first-generation American. And I think there's this, there's, I feel like for me, my perspective, for many white people, being labeled racist is probably one of like their biggest fears ever. They don't want to be labeled racist. So adopting this colorblindness allows them to just rebuke any conversations in regards to race and pretend that these systemic racism policies that are working against minorities and people of lower incomes or brown people don't exist. And it really shows you there's a world of difference because for people like me and for people who of my age group who want to have children, I had to consider that when having the conversation about, do I want to have children in a country where my greatest fear is not surviving an interaction with a police officer or my child not surviving an interaction with a police officer? or my child not being given the educational rights that they should have if they're, you know, bright and intelligent. All of the things and hurdles that I've had to overcome being the woman that I am. Clearly, there's a vast difference in worlds when you look at it in that perspective. Yeah, I think that that's a great point. It's a great point that you both brought up. Typically, when someone says they don't see color, it, it is a white person who's saying it because it's not something that they're experienced every day of having those roadblocks or people looking at you and thinking about your history and what you go through every day. I think what I've found interesting is when people are like, oh, you're bringing up race. Why are you bringing up race? Well, well, because that's what my experience is every day. People, the way they look at me, as you, as you said, the experiences every day and not negating the history of what your families have had to go through and experience. Like it just negates all of that. If you say, oh, why, why are we talking about race? As if the civil rights movement and now everything forward is just great. And, and anyone who brings up race is actually the problem. See, at your point, it, we need to make sure we're continuing to address those. Hillary, do you want to talk a little bit on your, your background as well? Yeah, I grew up outside of Chicago, which is a loose term. Chicago is a huge sprawling city with new and old suburbs. 
there's a north side and there's a south side. I grew up in the North Shore, 30 miles north of Chicago, and it's a really white town. And so in thinking about this topic and how I grew up considering race, I was never taught how to talk about it, which I think a lot of our generation was never really taught how to talk about it. We learned about the civil rights movement, but we learned that civil rights movement happened. So racism isn't a thing anymore. It was this box that was checked. We, we had been taught about the North and the South side of Chicago, how it's pretty separate. There's one part you want to go to and one part you don't want to go to. We never learned about any reasons behind that. And I just learned in, in researching this is that 6 million African-Americans who were trying to escape the Jim Crow South moved to Chicago at the beginning of the 1900s because there was a lot of industry in the city. There was manufacturing jobs, there were railroad jobs. But even then, when they moved, they were limited to the neighborhoods that they could live in. What Hillary is alluding to here is something called redlining. After Jim Crow laws were abolished and theoretically segregation had ended, the housing market started making red lines on maps to identify where large communities of Black and African Americans lived. This discriminatory practice that was backed by the U.S. government helped lenders deny loans for Black people and people of color, even if they were fully qualified to purchase in an affluent and predominantly white neighborhood. Physical copies of these maps still exist today, as do the remnants of its segregation. Scholars who study housing discrimination point to red lines as one factor behind the gulf in wealth between blacks and whites in the U.S. Today, black families have lost at least $212,000 in personal wealth over the last 40 years because their home was redlined. The fact that Chicago is still as segregated as it is today just goes to show how something that happened 100 years ago has this radiating effect up until the present. These communities are underserved. Money is still being funneled into the city away from these communities. So they don't have access to the education and the opportunities that people on the North Shore have. We were never taught about any of this growing up. And I'm trying to think of how anyone in my hometown ever talked about race. And I don't think it was ever even brought up because it was such a white privileged town that it didn't affect anyone who lived there. <laughs> and so that's what's been really interesting in, in considering this topic is the generational experience of the Black and African Americans in Chicago versus the people on the North side and how different the experiences are. And in, in, researching, in researching my hometown, definitely found some things that I wasn't very proud of, which I can, I can get into later. It's so valid when you talk about the experiences of people, especially during that time, or families who had settled various places throughout the country. You know, the Midwest would be very different from the South, which would be very different from the North, which would be very different from the Southwest. It's interesting that you say in your town, you can't really think about anybody who talked about race or any of those racial conversations that were happening. A couple of thoughts came to my mind. Part of the aversion for white people to be talking about race is a lack of resiliency when it comes to talking about race. And so what I mean by that is the more you talk about things, the more you're going to become 
somewhat desensitized to the topic, you're going to become accustomed to talking about it. You're going to be uncomfortable at first. And as you continue having those conversations, then it becomes more comfortable because you can have that open space and ask questions and learn more. As we all know, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. <laughs> and so by not having those conversations, there hasn't been built up any kind of resiliency for those kinds of conversations, whether it's about somebody else's race and their experience walking through America during this time based on the color of their skin and their lineage, or if it's even a conversation about one's own race, talking about the white experience. What does that look like? And along with that, the privilege that comes with it. I just talked about how I'm one of those halfies and, you know, I do have this duality of experiences and I have to honor and recognize both. So as much as I can recognize that, yes, I'm a first generation immigrant. Yes, there are people who look at me and this is how I walk through life. I am also half white. And along with that does come a lot of privilege. It doesn't have to be bad. It doesn't mean that that I'm taking away from anybody else. It's just understanding and recognizing that there are some things that are afforded to me that aren't afforded to some other folks. You know, it's interesting. I've got an interesting twist that I'll talk about this and then come back about my background. I, I grew up and spent time in communities where I was the only white guy. And I've heard this over and over. People would say something about white people, but then be like, oh, Marcus, you're not white. You know, we're not, you know what we're talking about. And I have to be like, no, no, I'm, I'm a white guy. And so it was almost this colorblindness to get like, clearly, if you, you, know, you see I'm a white guy, kind of the conversation is like, I don't want you to be blind to who I am. I am... I am white. Yes, I've, I've spent a lot of time in the black communities, but let's not pretend I'm not a white guy, which kind of goes back to I've had a different experience than Hillary in that I grew up where it was all race. We talked about race all the time. I went to schools that were segregated until I was in fourth grade. There was a school that was kindergarten through 12th grade. All the students were white where I went to school. There was another school a couple of miles down the road that was K through 12. All the students were black. And so when I was in fourth grade, they combined the schools this was in the early 80s. So I remind people this wasn't the 60s, this was the early 80s. And as you might imagine, all sorts of issues and, and people would, you know, students would put up signs on the water fountains about like, oh, this is for whites. And so we were always talking about race. I played sports. And as I mentioned, I, I was the only white guy on the basketball team. I was the only white guy to run track. And so I'd end up hanging out with my friends and going to someone's house and someone's about to run out of gas. And we're like, oh, Let's pull over for here. Me thinking, there's a gas station. And they'd be like, no, no, we, we can't stop there. And it was a place that had rebel flags in the windows and things that I just hadn't thought about. So just, we always talked about race. There was one quote that stuck with me that I learned a few years later. And that was Lyndon Johnson when he says, if you could convince the lowest white man, he's better than the best colored man. You won't notice you're picking his pocket. And that was sort of how we were taught. Like, yes, we were poor. I grew up in a trailer, but hey, at least you're white, at least you're American, you know, you're Christian, all these other things. And somehow the blame was on people who weren't white for taking advantage of the system and being lazy and, and all these other things somehow to make us feel better. So we always talked about race, but it was always in this blind spot of, of not really understanding history or why the way society was. We certainly weren't taught uh, history or, or black history in our schools. Till I was in 10th grade and I had my first black teacher, Dr. Mitchell, I remember him very well. He introduced me to Dr. King and Dr. Abernathy and 
that's shaped who I am, you know, having, having those experiences. So when I hear someone say, you know, I don't see color, it, it flabbergasts me because I'm like, I don't, I don't know how you don't see color when you see everyone else's experiences, when you see the history of what people have gone through. You make a great point. I would say I'm on the socioeconomically on the spectrum that most people don't expect. My parents moved me to a very white suburban town when I was in kindergarten. So I spent first grade all the way to high school graduation in a very white town. My parents were upper middle class. They worked their ass off to get there, but they did it. And it was always this weird feeling of people questioning how they got there. It wasn't done mean. It was always well-intentioned in quotes, but it's always just like, how did you manage that? How come your house is so big? What are you doing? Of course, my parents took it, you know, they took it positively. They're like, clearly they want to have what we have and they don't understand like sacrifices that we made to ensure that our kids were able to have this life or we were able to have this life for our children. But even to this day, I'm still well-to-do, you know, young Black woman, and I still feel like I get questioned on how I got to where I got to. Like, I'm like not supposed to be where I am. Speaking of Dr. Martin Luther King, I feel like a lot of this topic stems from the last third of his speech. I mean, he's like the beacon of peace. Everyone considers him this martyr. And he represents the civil rights movement for, I believe, many white people. And that line where he says he wants people to see his kids for the content of their character, not the color of their skin, I think it allowed well-meaning white people to hear that and say, well, all right, I don't want that to be the primary lens that I judge people's character. And therein lies like the foundation of where colorblindness resurrected itself. They used the words of this great man to kind of just pacify and appease their fear of being considered or deemed racist and allow them to just be completely blind to what was happening, the segregation and the continual unfairness and inequality that's been going on throughout our nation, even till current day. I would absolutely agree with that 100%. When we say there's no talks of racism and I don't see color and all of these things that allow somebody to live in a bubble that is devoid of other people's experiences, particularly, you know, people being killed on the streets, being murdered on the streets in broad daylight by police officers. That's the society that we live in right now. By living in that bubble and saying, I don't see color, they're saying that I'm not participating in this race conversation because I don't belong in this race conversation, which first of all is completely invalid. Everybody belongs in this conversation. But by using these other words and these other insinuating phrases, how did you get here? What do your parents do? And, you know, talking about other people in these ways, I'm realizing that while my white family didn't have conversations that were blatantly in your face about race and really having constructive conversations like this, they were having conversations about race. It was just in an underlying context. And I think that this I don't see color allows that to perpetuate. I don't know if it's that it created this ability for people to say, oh, you know, I'm not going to participate in that conversation. Because I think that if you look at history, there must have been the majority of people that said, 
I don't want to join in this conversation because I don't have a stake in the game. To me, this I don't see color is just the new way of perpetuating that silence. My hometown, Lake Forest, I'm seventh generation from that town. My family roots go back really far. And just in doing light research have found so much more about the town than we ever spoke about. So for instance, learned that Lake Forest was a sundown town. Black and Jewish people were not allowed in the town after sunset. Sundown towns are all white communities, neighborhoods, or counties that exclude Blacks and other minorities through the use of discriminatory laws, harassment, and threats or use of violence. Sundown towns often use posted and verbal warnings to Blacks that although they might be allowed to work or travel in a community during the daytime, they must leave by sundown. There were up to 10,000 sundown towns in the United States, primarily in the South and Midwest between 1890 and 1960, and they proliferated into the North in the early 1900s when African Americans were leaving the South to escape the racism and poverty of the area. There's not a lot of documentation about that when it when it started, when it ended, um, but it is still a part of the history, and that was never once mentioned. I, I asked my dad about it because he, he grew up in the town and he doesn't remember anything about it. And until the 1990s, there were housing covenants in effect in my hometown that allowed landlords to discriminate against Jewish and African-American people until the 1990s, even though the Fair Housing Act was passed in the 60s. This was never taught to us at all. And I think for me to have started at a younger age with a better holistic understanding of race in America, I think you kind of have to start in your hometown and the history there. And it would have been nice to know more about the history of Chicago as well. We're taught world history, we're, we're taught American history, but I think to actually grasp it and start to think about it, you have to think about talking about things local to you and near you because it's it's where you can see it happening around you. So. I am just a little disappointed that my education on this started later and my family still doesn't really talk about it. <laughs> kind of tried to this summer, but didn't, it, it didn't really gain any traction. It is a lot about this conversation. I'm colorblind. I don't see color. They don't think they have a part in the conversation. And I think we need to get beyond that. What prompted that thread of discussing it? The murder of George Floyd. During pandemic, my whole extended family, I have a pretty big family. We we were checking in on each other, what everyone was doing during quarantine. A lot of my family lives in Minnesota. So when the murder of George Floyd happened, um, Black Lives Matter protests were happening. We all kind of got back in touch talking about that. I had a cousin who tried to open up the conversation about our family history and the source of our privilege, and that got shot down. <laughs> My brother had some really interesting things to say about it, which if I can find it, I can quote it later. We found it. Fennel was a weed on a farm I worked on. There is nothing inherently wrong with fennel. It is a perfectly good, desirable plant. But when it pops up in a row of strawberries, it's a weed and needs to be pulled. As the gardener arbitrates what constitutes a weed, so does the ruling class arbitrate what constitutes a criminal, so as to protect its pretty little row of strawberries. I suppose in this context, it's fortunate to have been born a strawberry, but a meticulously curated row at the expense of millions of people suffering does not resemble freedom for anyone. Our history is very difficult to reconcile morally. An equitable America looks almost nothing like the America we know now.
It's interesting because I've had this experience too when we're talking about privilege. You said, you know, where your family came from. I've noticed that if I even just say the word privilege in front of my white friends, it's met with, I've worked hard for everything that I have. It's clearly automatic, just defensiveness. And I think it comes from that lack of resiliency and talking about it. While nobody doubts that you worked hard for what you have and nobody's putting that down, nobody's discrediting, you know, your efforts, but just understanding that if you started at the 10th stair and somebody else started at the 300th stair on a, you know, like 500 story building, you've got some clear advantages. And while you're still climbing 200 floors, like it's, it's still not starting from the same place as somebody else. And I think it's important to point out, even if you are starting at the same stair, right? And I feel like that's how I would. I didn't come from a privileged background, but I didn't have barriers put in front of me because of my race, because of who I am. I don't look at myself as someone who started on third base. I started obviously with not a lot of opportunities either, but none of the barriers in front of me were because of my race. Nobody restricted me because of my race or my name or my sexual orientation, anything like I didn't have any of those barriers. For me, that's the privilege that I talk about is like, hey, I don't have the daily stressors of being pulled over, you know, 10 times. I don't have those stressors on me every day that someone else might have. I'll share this story. I was at an event one night. It was a gala and I don't typically drink, but it was in the night and someone was like, hey, we're trying to finish this bottle of wine. And so I drank a glass of wine. On the way home, it's midnight. I was wearing a tuxedo. I drive a a pretty nice car, but I got pulled over. And the officer walked up to my window and she goes, hey, do you know why I pulled you over? And I I got an attitude. I was like, I don't know. I figured you're going to tell me why you pulled me over. And she's like, oh, you were were 10 miles above the speed limit or something. And she says, have you been drinking? Like, well, yeah, I had one glass of wine. And she says, well, would you mind taking a breathalyzer? And I'm like, sure. Like for me, this is cool. I've never taken a breathalyzer. Let's let's do it, right? But before she can go back to her car, we hear voices and she, we look up and there are three black teenagers walking down the road. And she just goes, hey, be careful and lets me go so that she can go question these three black teenagers walking down the street. Now, A, I was speeding. There's no zero doubt I was speeding. B, I know I wasn't drunk, but she didn't know that. Everyone says I only had one glass when when truly I did. So I could have been drunk. I was speeding. Yet you want to go question these three black youth walking down the street. If that isn't the definition, that is privilege. Like clearly. So we after the civil rights movement, before the civil rights movement, we had all of this violence in our face. Most of these things were legitimately in our face. It was hard to deny what was happening. But then after the civil rights movement, we've gotten to this place where it's like, now you see it and now you don't. And all of these racial conversations have become unofficial and less easy to differentiate that it's racism. For example, we were talking about white majority communities. What's happening is there's unofficial segregation occurring. You have realtors who say they don't see race, but then they are steering certain people into all Black neighborhoods, all white neighborhoods, all Hispanic neighborhoods, just so they can avoid the conversation of racism, but they're already typecasting you and where they're having you look for housing. Unofficial segregation. 
And then it's easy when you're in a white majority community to never think about the laws, the zoning, the social politics that are promoting gaps in education, the wealth equality along racial lines. Then there's also this really strong patriotic belief that America is built on this belief that we are individuals who our habits and principles are solely on being independent, being self-reliant. It's this individualist mentality. What they're not seeing is when you say that, oh, I've worked so hard to get here, or my education has allowed me to get this job. If people wanted to be where I am, they would work harder. It allows people to just completely negate the fact that there's clearly set advantages and disadvantages for people of minority, people that are brown, people of color, and it blames all of these moral issues or this inability to get out of poverty on the color of someone's skin and not the fact that there's a system that is working against them. And it allows you to be complacent in thinking that it's their fault. They're not working hard enough. They're not smart enough. They're not trying to accomplish what I'm trying to accomplish. And that is where this colorblindness really gets scary. You start thinking that anyone of a certain color should be at a certain level because they're not working hard enough. They're not working as hard as you. And you're not acknowledging the fact that you have all of these privileges, literally very little barriers to get to where you are. And then you're not either lending a hand or speaking up or having the conversation. So this this type of way of life, this system that is created can be dismantled. So everyone actually has an equal shot. Absolutely. The notion of pull yourself up by your bootstraps because my parents did it and their parents did it. And so why can't you do it? First of all, not everybody even has boots, let alone bootstraps. So how can you, you've, you've taken away their boots and you've taken away their bootstraps, but you, you still say you can lift yourself up by them. The taking away of the boots and the bootstraps is those policies, the laws, redlining, you know, all of these things. I think it's perpetuated by these stories. And I would say they're myths of these really successful people pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and making themselves something. So people can look to that and go, well, they did it. Why can't you do it? And these stories are always Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg. If you actually start looking into their stories, they actually had many, many, many connections via their parents, as well as many, many, many financial loans from their parents to start these companies. That is the reason they were successful. They didn't pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And anybody who says that, I would argue that somebody somewhere helped you. Nobody gets to the top without some helping hands. And the bootstrap mentality is, in my mind, just completely toxic. I would say for those who were raised to not see color, I think the first step is to probably actively seek or learn about what it is to be anti-racist instead of being colorblind. And then understand that a major shift in thinking just doesn't happen overnight. There has to be some level of grace and understanding that you're not going to unravel years and years of embedded to your brain just by doing some research. So one, give yourself grace to actively seek the education about being anti-racist and then just commit to it on an individual level. 
do some ongoing self-examination and just acknowledge that others' life experiences is painful and don't just disregard it or pretend it doesn't exist or minimize it to maintain your comfort. If you have Black people or minorities in your network, don't rely on them to be your only source of information. It really isn't their job to teach you all the things that they have to go through. They have to go through it as is, let alone always. Like they don't need to also be educating you on what that experience is like. So be proactive in seeking other sources outside of other people that are brown or black or minorities in your friend group or family group. There's great podcasts about it. There's books about race in America. Definitely consider reading books from Black authors. And then connect with a non-Black friend and, you know, keep a text thread or an email chain where you share questions and resources to educate each other so you can actively, like, bring in someone that's close to you that may be wanting to go down this road of being anti-racist and work on this together. Yep, I love it. I completely agree with the multicultural approach. The more you can listen to to other people's experiences, everybody has their own complete unique experience of walking through life. There can be two people from the same country that move to America at the same time that have very similar backgrounds and lineages, but have a completely different experience. And the more you learn, the more you will understand the more you live, the more you experience yourself, the more empathetic you'll be to those experiences as well. And I would say, listen with an open heart, with a non-judgmental mindset, and try to avoid assigning good or bad to things, because things can just be as they are. Not everything has to be good or bad. And I think in that way, it will help you to understand and empathize with the experiences that are not yours. One thing when you were talking, Badiana, that I had remembered was a quote by Mark Twain that I just love. And I think it's applicable here. It ain't what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. And I think that's a huge part of this conversation of not everybody can know everything. So I don't know everything. Badiana doesn't know everything. Marcus doesn't. But the more we talk about this together, the more we understand that we're all living in this shared reality and that everybody's experience is valid, then I think that gets us closer to unity. What I like, Badiana, the way you you mentioned it is, yes, go read books, go, go you know, listen to podcasts. I think there's this tendency to want to keep searching until you find something that's presented in a way that's palatable to you. I would challenge people not to do that. Like I'll read a book and there may be there may be a chapter where I'm like, I don't agree with that. But it doesn't mean I put the book down. It means I continue reading other chapters and different viewpoints. And again, look for other news sources, other sources of information. And you know, one author, one thing may not totally resonate with me, but that doesn't mean I shut it out or it doesn't mean I keep seeking until I find it presented in a way that makes me feel good. Keep an open mind. Be comfortable being uncomfortable, uh, knowing that it's not, you know, it's not attacking you and specifically as a, as a white person. Like it's not attacking you. It's, it's presenting history and views and things that weren't previously presented to you. So just staying open to that. And it's the themes, like these are the themes and experiences that we want you to get an understanding of. I think the number one 
thing that I wish people would understand and take away from this is the first step is admitting you don't know everything and it's okay that you don't know everything. And then I, I know a lot of the rhetoric of the summer of 2020 from white people was like, I'm not talking and I'm listening now. And, and it goes back to what you said, Badiana, is don't put the onus on your black friends and family to educate you. You have to do it yourself. And I think that's been the most important takeaway for me. And I have an accountability buddy or, or two for these conversations. My best friend and I, we talk every week and we talk about everything and race comes up and we both read White Fragility this year. And then my fiance and I, we talk about these things a lot. So we are, <laughs> we are actively seeking out these conversations. Still, still a ways to go, but we're not giving up on it anytime soon. Thank you for joining us today. We'll see you next time.